Hi, I'm Travis Knight, director and producer of and occasional animator on Kubo and the Two Strings. Thanks for joining me here on my director's commentary. It's the first one of these things that I've ever done, so keep your expectations low, and I think we're going to be just fine. One of the things we give a lot of thought to early on is the film's opening image. It ideally means something, makes some kind of a statement, and for this film, it's the moon. The unblinking eye, the symbol of Kubo's grandfather, who casts a pall over our boy's family and his life. It's an image that we come back to repeatedly over the course of the show. And in the last shot of the film, 90 minutes from now, we'll see how all that changes. So here we are in our cold open. We wanted to throw the audience into the film headfirst with a little drama, some peril, a little bit of mystery, some magic, and a sense of the epic scale of the movie. After this sequence, we slow things down quite a bit and take our time to establish the characters, the rules of the world, which is always important in fantasy. So we want to start off with a bang. This section of the movie was pretty challenging to bring to life. It's a hoedown of various practical and digital visual effects techniques that took us pretty much the entirety of the schedule to shoot, about 18 months for this two and a half minute sequence. It should come as no surprise that stop motion water just simply don't go well together. There are a variety of techniques at play here to make it work. We had that physical puppet there with rigged clothing and long hair fastened to wires and a gooseneck armature to mimic the undulation of the wind. And a gooseneck armature is basically one of those flexible, adjustable tubes that you find in a microphone stand or a table lamp. And so we attached that to the puppet's skull and essentially wrapped a bunch of silicon spaghetti around it to make it look like hair. Now, visually for this sequence, we were inspired by classic Japanese art, specifically the iconic woodblock print of Hokusai's Great Wave off Kanagawa. In fact, the whole film was designed by our incredible production designer, Nelson Lowry, to appear as if it's a moving woodblock print, like it's a painting or an illustration brought to life. We wove all those woodblock patterns and textures into pretty much every surface, somehow bringing all those stylized elements into water that behaved naturalistically was a monumental effort. Now this here is one of the few bits I personally animated on the film. The animation on this section was very slow going. There was all this cloth and sand and hair to deal with, which are very challenging in stop motion. And the baby Kubo puppet was absurdly small, about as big as my thumb. Those faces were so tiny I had to place them on the puppet's head with tweezers. It was a painfully protracted effort, but it was all worth it. You know, besides, ain't nothing quite like a baby's bloody eye socket to start a movie. So we jump forward about 10 years to see what's become of that poor kid and his mom, and frankly, they're not doing all that great. Here's Kubo's Netsuke, which will become very important later in the film. In ancient Japan, kimonos had no pockets, so people would keep their personal items in small pouches or boxes hung by their belts with a small cord, and the fastener, which would secure the cord, was a netsuke, a small handcrafted charm usually carved out of jade or ivory or wood. And they serve a practical function, but they're also beautiful works of art in their own right. Kubo's netsuke is a monkey, a beloved family heirloom, and you'll notice it's worn and cracked with a split right down the middle of its right eye, just like the living monkey that it becomes later in the film. Also, Monkey Scar is a mirror image of Mother Scar, which is on the left side of her face. Ow. Between Kubo burning his fingers with the boiling water and his mom smashing her head on the rocks, we're letting the audience know that this is a world where people get hurt. This isn't a wily e. coyote universe where you bounce back after being flattened into a wall. 
Here, if an Acme anvil falls on your head, your head is now a gruesome, pulpy stump. In Kubo's world, pain hurts and dead is dead. Alas, like the real world. Now, nearly all this sequence was animated beautifully by lead animator Jason Stallman, one of the very best animators in the world. Jason can do pretty much anything. You cast animators on a film much the same way that you cast actors. In fact, that's what animation is. It's acting. There are basically two parts to any performance, the one that you see and the one that you hear. In live action, those two things are bound together. In animation, they're separate. In stop motion, the animator is physically acting through the puppet a frame at a time, somehow trying to coax a believable and human performance out of an inert assemblage of steel and silicon and plastic. Stop motion puppets are like little vampires. They suck the life out of the artist to touch them. In stop motion, nothing moves of its own volition. Every bit of life you see on screen has to come from somewhere, and that somewhere is the animator. These artists really do give part of themselves to the film. And they all have different things that they excel at. Some animators are great at action, some better at acting and subtle emotion, some good at shots with complex physics and weight. And then there are those animators who can do anything that you throw at them. And Jason is one of those animators. He'll tackle any shot, any challenge, and do it brilliantly. And this sequence demonstrates that. And one of the key visual influences on this film, clearly, is origami. And you can see its impact all throughout the movie. Here you can see it in Kubo's cave and in his mountain, which is basically a perfect geometric shape. It's part of the film's visual vocabulary, and you'll see it repeated over and over again in sets and props, even in costumes, and obviously in the origami itself. So we're now finally opening up the world, and with this first shot and this part of the sequence, we get a sense of Kubo's isolation. He's utterly alone, completely removed from meaningful human contact. The mountain he lives on seems to lean away from civilization. For this shot here, we completed the animation of Kubo running out of his cave in March of 2015, but we weren't able to complete the shot until May of 2016, over a year later. And that's because Kubo's mountain would have been too large for us to build at full scale in our studio, so we built it in miniature. It was still huge, and we needed a ton of stage space to have the camera rig track all the way around the miniature mountain, space which was in short supply until the very end of the shoot. After we had all the elements, our compositing team assembles everything in the computer to make for one stunning integrated shot. So this is the first sequence in the film to show any kind of significant human interaction, and it marks a big tonal shift in the movie. We move from melancholy to joy, from dramatic to playful. We introduce Kubo's extended human family in the village, and so we wanted the field to be vibrant and full of life and festive and whirling with activity. Kubo's village was a composite of a number of towns that we researched that existed in Heian period Japan, going back a thousand years ago. We would always go straight to regional and historic reference. Real-life architecture and nature often hold bold design surprises. Each region and era's history is a potent treasure trove of influence that we bring to the film. It helps make Kubo's village live and breathe like a real place, so our fairy tale has one foot in the real world. The lighting cameraman on this sequence is Dean Holmes, who tackled some of our most challenging bits in the film. This one was tricky, as there's a ton of camera movement, multiple scales of puppets at play, and the whole thing transpires over an entire day, so maintaining lighting continuity on multiple sets over the course of a year became a logistical nightmare. But you'd never know to look at it. It came together wonderfully. 
Now, the story that Kubo tells here in Storytime is basically the plot of the whole film in miniature. We lay the foundations of the quest, the mythology, the pieces of armor, and the villain. We're essentially foreshadowing Kubo's entire external journey that takes place in the film, battling monsters, acquiring the magical armor, losing his family, and finally facing off against his nemesis, the dreaded Moon King. But at this point in the movie, Kubo doesn't know how it ends. So we hear Kubo's father's name for the first time, Hanzo, the greatest samurai the world has ever known. We wanted Kubo's dad's name to mean something, to have an impact the first time you hear it. And so we chose Hanzo, a nod to the real-life historical figure Hattori Hanzo, a titan in one of Japan's greatest periods of samurai culture. He's a legend. He's almost mythic in stature. Tori Hanzo has been immortalized many times in film over the decades, and Quentin Tarantino created a fictionalized version of him in Kill Bill as a master swordsmith played by Sonny Chiba. So Hanzo is a name that has resonance, as it needed to, since he has a strong presence in Kubo's life, despite the fact that he's never around, that we never see him. Well, until the end, that is. So Kubo tells stories that are a combination of his family's history and his own imagination. In that way, Kubo is kind of a proxy for us, the filmmakers. Kubo is like a feudal Japanese filmmaker in a sense. He tells stories of his father's brave exploits, stories that have been passed down from his mom. But he doesn't just do it to earn a living, he does it to keep his father's memory alive. Now, we had a couple of different versions of Little Hanzo, the origami stand-in for Kubo's father. His 100% scale relative to Kubo is just a little over an inch tall, the smallest puppet that we've ever built. When we push in for close-ups and action shots on the level of the origami figures, we use a puppet that was over seven times as large. Now, this allowed us to get subtlety and nuance in the performance, which would be impossible at the original scale. Now, the origami figures are made out of Tyvek, which is a plasticky, paper-like material often used in building construction to wrap houses and in FedEx envelopes. It looks and behaves like paper. It flexes and stretches and holds folds like paper, but it's much, much more durable. Tyvek is nearly tear-proof. We did some initial tests using actual paper, but it just deteriorated too quickly. When you're shooting for the better part of two years, you need the puppets to hold up to a lot of abuse. A lot of manhandling by big, greasy sausage fingers. And real paper just doesn't cut it. The armatures for the origami figures were pretty unusual. Typically, an armature is designed from the inside out, mimicking a real skeleton. But we designed the armatures for the origami puppets from the outside in, as paper flexes and bends very differently from skin and muscle. The armatures are still assemblages of steel ball joints, hinges, swivels, and wire, but we just had to be a little creative about the way that those parts were used. For the origami transformations, we experimented with a number of different materials, everything from silk to cardstock to fine handmade Japanese origami paper to various types of urethane. Ultimately, the most suitable material came from the bathroom. Gross, I know. But the paper towels from the automatic dispenser in the men's room ended up being the best material to paint and remain animatable. Kevin, our animator, would take cinefoil, this flexible, poseable kind of aluminum, and cover it with the paper towels from the men's room, and it became this beautiful origami. You know, because origami is very graphic, the folding only had to make sense from the camera's point of view, which meant that we could cheat what was actually happening. It's all fakery, really. 
Now, Kevin would cut up shapes and create discrete bits of folded paper that would appear to transform out of a single sheet of paper. The key to making it work was to have a few large shapes that the eyes could follow so that a lot of the smaller details could magically morph or disappear. It's the same basic principle behind smears and multiples in traditional hand-drawn animation. It's a big cheat, but it totally works. Now, origami is essentially an art of transformation. You take a simple geometric shape, a flat piece of paper, and through the imagination and skill of an artist, it becomes something else entirely. It's given new life. In that way, origami is very much like animation, and Kubo's really an animator, bringing inanimate objects to life with his will and his imagination. A lot of the animators saw something of themselves in Kubo, including me. ...hand in front of his face. Hanzo and his army of loyal samurai pressed on... So the sun sets, and Mom becomes more lucid. Over the years, she's been deteriorating. She's been holding power in reserve for when she'll eventually need to help Kubo. This has the effect of making her less a part of Kubo's daily life. She's drifting away from him. She's fading. There's a little bit of metaphor at play here. This film explores that time in our lives when we begin that transition from childhood to adulthood, when things begin to shift and then change forever. For most of us, that's a process that takes months or years. But this is a movie, so we compress time. For Kubo, it takes 90 minutes. So we see here that Mom is a storyteller too. We see where Kubo gets his gift from. This whole scene here was beautifully animated by Jason Stallman, Rochelle Lambden, and Steve Warren, and lit by John Ashley. Now, in a bit of foreshadowing, we'll see Mom play act the monkey part here. This is one of those rare instances where we were able to get both actors in a scene in the recording studio at the same time. And we get this really lovely interaction between Art Parkinson, who plays Kubo, and Charlize Theron, who plays both Mom and Monkey. It's always preferable to get the actors to record together, although it can be very challenging to schedule it. But when it works, you get a beautiful moment like this, where the actors are living the moment together. I just love their exchange here. So our process is we record the actors' voices first before we do the animation. The actors' vocal performance establishes the foundation for all the physical acting and the facial animation. We have video cameras in the recording studio trained on the actors' faces so the facial animators can see what interesting and idiosyncratic expressions the actors are making while delivering the lines. This can be an excellent reference when we're creating the facial animation for the shot. And there's a number of times in the film where a particular expression on the puppet's face is exactly what the actor did in the studio. It makes the characters more unique and more alive. We record the actors over the course of a little over a year, but anytime you have kids in lead roles, the clock is ticking because their voices can change dramatically over that period of time. For Art, or Kubo, that time frame was more compressed. At the time of the record, he's the same age as Kubo, about 11 or 12 years old. But by the time we were done shooting, Art was 15. We completed all of Art's sessions over a six-month period, and by the time we got to our last session, he, you know, he could barely do the voice anymore. His voice had changed. It was deeper than mine by that point. Kind of sounded like Fred Gwynn. <laughs> hey, boys. But fortunately, we spent a lot of time with him early on, and we captured everything that we needed in hours upon hours of recording sessions. Now, working with young actors is interesting because they obviously don't have as much life experience to draw from as their more seasoned counterparts. But if you find a young actor with innate ability, there's a beautiful and natural purity to their performance. It feels real because it is real. And that was the case with Art. 
He's astonishingly good. He needed to be. You know, to carry the weight of the film on his shoulders and to hold his own in scenes where everyone around him has decades of experience and trophy cases full of Oscars and BAFTAs and Golden Globes and SAG Awards and every other recognition you can think of. These are some of the finest actors in the world in this movie, and art fits right in and beautifully. We audition hundreds of actors from three continents from all over the world for Kubo. And the process is these are blind auditions. Our casting director will send us audio files with the actor's name and nothing else. In fact, I think Art recorded his audition on his mom's iPhone. So when we're evaluating, we listen to the audio clip while we're looking at the character design. And we have no idea what the actor's backgrounds are, where they're from, what they look like. We only go off of the audition and the sound of the voice and the quality of the performance. In that way, it's as close to a pure meritocracy as I can imagine. And in the end, it wasn't even close. Art's audition was exceptional. He's just an incredible natural actor. His voice has a beautiful, timeless quality. And he gives such a moving, soulful performance. He's one of the finest actors that we've ever worked with. And we were exceedingly lucky to have found him. Plus, he's just a terrific guy. So thank you, Allison Jones, casting director extraordinaire. Okay, so... In stark contrast to this quietly tragic scene with Kubo and his mom, we start the next scene in a bright, boisterous, celebratory mood. What we see here is Obon Festival. Obon is a Japanese tradition going back half a millennium, rooted in Buddhism, intended to honor the spirits of our ancestors. But it's not a solemn occasion, it's more of a celebration, something akin to the Mexican Day of the Dead holiday. During the Obon holiday, the spirits of our ancestors are able to return to our world and visit us. In our fantastic heightened version of Obon in this film, the villagers are actually able to commune with their past loved ones, to see and speak and connect with them. It's a reminder that our loved ones are never really gone from our lives, that we carry them with us. Now the dance you see at the beginning of this scene is called Bonodori. It's an actual style of dance performed during Obon Festival. The song that's playing underneath is our interpretation of a traditional festival song called Tankobushi, which literally means the coal miner's song. The name of the song is a reference to the basic choreography, which mimics the movements of coal miners, digging, pushing a cart, hanging a lantern, that sort of thing. We worked with this amazing choreographer to make certain that we got all the details right. Sohomi Tachibana was unbelievable. She's a 90-year-old choreographer who led a troupe of dancers in the Bonadori, which we shot with video cameras and used as reference for our animators. And that level of authenticity is the sort of thing that makes Kubo's world look and feel like a real place, grounding our fantasy in reality. A really nice one. As a director, I could not have asked for a better producer, Ariane Sutner. Ariane has that rare gift, insight and creative sensitivity and understanding that you don't often find in a producer. She really was the perfect partner, and I was very, very lucky. So Kameo, the uh, character there, is Kubo's one friend in town. And after she schools him, gives him a little bit of a pep talk, he heads off down to the cemetery to hopefully connect with his father. I love this shot here. It's, you know, really complex. We shot it on three different sets and used these foreground elements as transitional elements. And we begin this scene with optimism, which is reflected in the color palette. And that's course all about the change here in a moment. I love George Takei's performance here. Being able to work with George was a dream come true. I'm a lifelong Star Trek fan 
And I absolutely adore George for not only his iconic film and TV characters, but for his tireless and selfless activism for a better world. For his character in this film, George plays a father that represents everything that Kubo wishes that he had, but has been denied. A loving father who is present and attentive, who passes on traditions and family history. We wanted the actor playing this role to embody the best aspects of what it means to be human, the best aspects of what it means to be a father, someone who carries wisdom and understanding and compassion, warmth and mercy, even in their voice. And when I think of actors that embody that for me, I think of George Takei. He's a beautiful soul and an inspiration. And here, Kubo sees a living example of what he desperately wants. But Kubo's alone, as opposed to the celebratory community that we see in the cemetery, he's by himself, and we highlight his isolation here. He's set apart from everyone else. He tries to engage in a little bit of small talk with his dad, awkwardly trying to reach out to his father. And of course, it goes terribly, and he becomes progressively more desperate. Some really gorgeous animation and acting here from our animator, Dan Alderson. And I also really love what our director of photography, Frank Passingham, did with the lighting. It's pretty much the opposite of what you'd expect. As things get worse and worse for Kubo, as his mood darkens, the light in the background actually gets brighter and warmer, accentuating how completely alone and cut off Kubo is from the world around him. It's a funhouse mirror of Kubo's emotion, a distorted reflection of the drama of the moment. We start with optimism and amber hues, move to the angry red of the sunset, and finish up with the cold blues and spooky moonlight, color becoming proxy for the boy's emotion. It's really great stuff. So the shot coming up here is just stunning. Nearly everything that you're going to see in this shot is computer generated. The only physical elements are the shore, the rocks, and the trees in the foreground on either side of the river. The water, the lanterns, the deep background, the sky are a combination of CG and a beautiful matte painting. It really opens up the world. So Kubo, of course, very disappointed that he wasn't able to connect with his father, and his reaction is anger. And you see that reflected in the palette and the lighting here. And he violates one of the rules that his mother set for him at the beginning of the film, which is not stay out after dark. And it has horrible consequences, as we will see here in a moment. So now is the portion of the film where we induce pulse-pounding, heart-racing, bowel-loosening terror. We're in full-on, straight-up horror movie mode here. This is what Kubo's mom has been warning him about. This is what happens when you stay out after dark. So let that be a lesson to you kids. Listen to your parents. We begin the scene with a sense of coiled dread that escalates into white-knuckle terror. And as the tension builds, coinciding with Kubo's frantic, desperate energy, all the stylistic choices that we make reflect that as well. Shot selection, camera and lighting, animation, and the music. Good God, this music is good. This scene was storyboarded by Brian Ormiston and lit and shot by our director of photography, Frank Passingham. The vocal performance by Rooney Mara here as the sisters is excellent. So creepy. I have a feeling this moment will trigger more than a few night terrors for some of our audience. Sorry, Mom and Dad. And Tim Chow's sound design only heightens the sense of menace. 
Tim really played around with the space, and we captured Rooney in the recording studio whispering in all different kinds of cadences that we could then use in the sound design to bounce around us, bouncing from front to back, from left to right and back again, letting us know that there's nowhere to hide, that we're trapped. One of the most striking aspects of the sisters' design are their masks. Their faces are covered in identical no-like masks, which are inspired by the types of carved cypress masks typically seen in no theater, a form of Japanese musical drama dating back to the 14th century. No stories often feature supernatural beings who descend to earth and take human form, which is exactly what's happening here. And because the actors' faces were usually covered in masks, they had to convey all their emotions physically with gestures and with movement, which is a perfect analog to what we do as animators. The sisters' costuming was inspired by Tomoe Gozen, a legendary 12th century female samurai. But the most amazing thing is that cape. Those capes are a spectacular piece of engineering. They were meant to evoke predatory birds and they were designed by Patrick Zung, who's something of a mad genius. Effectively, the cape is made out of piano wire with a hyper-complex interlocking grid connecting to a concertina, allowing the cape to extend, compress, and collapse. The exterior of the cape has over 800 individually placed laser etched feathers covering the metal grid, each uniquely sized and shaped so that they could slide over each other without catching. And you can actually see the rigging on the inside of that cape if you look carefully. With each wig of the sisters, we placed around three dozen small black rubber bands around the base of the ponytail to help it swing around. For mother's long hair, we infuse it with powdered metal to give it weight and gravity. Remember this. Now, the magic on this shot was done with a miniature light attached to mom's hand, which gives our practical light effects on the puppets. And then we paint out the actual light, the bulb, and the wire in compositing, and add in some visual effects like bloom and that wispy, vaporous, magic-y stuff. Now, this is the most intense moment of the first act, and it takes us a while for us to recover from it, which is why we need the beginning of the second act to be a bit of a salve. So we come to in a desolate wasteland. This environment is bleak and barren and forbidding, reflecting Kubo's emotional state. Our filmmaking choices here reinforce Kubo's emotion. He's disoriented, his vision's a blur, his hearing is muted. He's consumed by grief. And visually and sonically, we're off balance. We're bereft of our bearings. And this sequence here was animated by Matthias Liebrecht and shot by Mark Stewart. The snow that you see on the ground is all practical. The animator had to carve into the snow every time a character would take a step or put weight on the ground and then animate little loose bits of snow around the depressions. The snow on the ground is a concoction of salt and shredded styrofoam mixed with paraffin wax to make it sticky and poseable. And all that snow swirling around in the air was supplied by our visual effects department. The swirling VFX snow shared characteristics with a workflow that was similar to what we used for the smoke demons in that earlier sequence. And because of that, we referred to these effects as snow demons. So we have this great helicopter shot giving a sense of the hopelessness of their situation. It gives a sense of scale that you typically don't see in stop motion. The animator ran the puppets in place and we had a portion of the real set and then used a digital set extension and the snow to fill out the environment. You might be tempted to so this little moment, we have a nice nod to Star Wars here. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. That whale is actually a miniature that we shot on a different unit and then composited together with the full-scale set and puppets in the foreground. Some really terrific animation from Trey Thomas here. 
We call this scene Shelter from the Storm for obvious reasons. It's a scene of domesticity, of intimacy. Notably, this is the first time we see someone taking care of Kubo. We turn the tables on the sequence from the beginning of the film where Kubo's looking after his mother, and it's effectively a funhouse mirror version of that same scene. Here the roles are reversed, but while Kubo was a gentle, patient, and attentive caregiver, Monkey is brusque, short-tempered, and impatient, no-nonsense. Early on, Monkey is representative of the strength of a mother's love without the tenderness. It's how she naturally is, but it's also an effort to protect the boy. Of course, over the rest of the second act, we see her sensitivity and warmth, and we catch glimpses of her vulnerability and pain and how deeply she loves this boy. The inside of the whale itself is just beautiful, and it's a testament to the artists at Laika that they were able to make this gross, decaying slab of meat look like a majestic, towering cathedral of bone and frozen viscera. It's just gorgeous. I want to go to there. Structurally, the beginning of Act 2 has symmetry with Act 1, but everything is inverted. This whole sequence was animated by Andy Bailey, and it's some of the finest animation I've ever seen. It's just exquisite. These characters are fully alive. The gestures, the expressions, the idiosyncratic character tics. You can feel exactly what these characters are feeling, and you know exactly what they're thinking, what they're going through. It's astonishing to think that these are merely a couple of fancy dolls, assemblages of steel and silicon and cloth. In Andy's hands, they're living, breathing creatures with emotions and vulnerabilities and hopes and dreams. You have to do as I say. So, if you don't eat, you'll be weak. If so, yeah, we have, <laughs> we have the passing of a bowl of soup. Such a simple gesture. It's funny, every time a puppet has to hold something, it's a minor crisis. A puppet's fingers are made of floral wire, which is really, really delicate material. And it's great for getting tiny movements and a good performance out of, but it's not good for tactile strength. They can't really hold anything with their fingers. Their fingers and their hands are always the first things to break in production. And when that happens, we'll remove the upper portion of the arm. There's a little screw, usually hidden by a sleeve, or in Monkey's case, fur. And then we'll replace the entire upper section with a brand new arm. We have a small team who essentially only makes puppet hands for the entirety of the shoot. It's just an enormous task. So if a character has to hold something, we have to cut into the puppet's hands to reveal a rigging point embedded in the palm. And then we screw the prop into the hand. Sometimes we'll have a little wire attached to the puppet's hand in the prop, which allows the animator to move the prop slightly while still being relatively stable. And if worse comes to worse and something actually breaks, well, we, we have what we call a puppet hospital, which uh, takes care of all their problems, all their breakages, and sends them back out on the stage as good as new. Really real. Incidentally, Kubo's hair is actual human hair. It's actual human hair combed through with silicon and dusted with colored powders to give it highlights. I can appreciate that that's sort of gross. And it was weird animating something that used to live on someone's head. I didn't mean to. Your this whole sequence here was lit by Frank Passingham and Drew Fortier. This thing was really challenging here because the size of the puppet's hand is about as big as your pinky. And so all that little twisting of wire had to be done on an incredibly small scale. And Andy pulls it off incredibly well. It's just, just beautiful. 
Now we ran out of time on this sequence and some of the stuff we had to shoot with green screen because we had a bounce unit for our animator who would go back and forth shooting both sides of this discussion. It was a rare instance where we could actually shoot in continuity and I think you get a sense of their bond over the course of the movie because we were able to shoot it in that way. Now go to sleep. I love this little moment at the end here after Kubo goes to sleep, Monkey finally softens, staring lovingly at the boy. As a parent, there's something so beautiful and affecting about watching your child sleep, and that's the feeling that we're trying to evoke here. This sequence here is like a warped reflection of how we begin the second act. There's some lovely symmetry here. The sequences open similarly, but they are tonally quite different. One was noisy and chaotic. This one is hushed and still. The previous sequence was about isolation. This one's about connectivity. The previous moment was one of grief and loss. This is a moment of hope. And this whole sequence is a transition as we start to climb out of this pit of despondency toward the light, which in a nice bit of metaphor is how we end the sequence. Now, much of this section was animated by our lead animator, Malcolm Lamont, brilliantly. We have different scales at play here. The full puppet scale of Kubo and Monkey in the background, that's a standard scale. The guy in the foreground, the little origami man, little Hanzo, was actually a 700% scale puppet. So he's about as big as Kubo and Monkey. And then we'd shrink him down and composite him so he's the same size. Which is what we did here as well, which created a challenge because you can see the Kubo puppet actually has to hold and manipulate the little Hanzo puppet. And so he effectively just mimed it because he actually wasn't holding anything there. And then we shot those in two different passes and then composited them together. It was incredibly challenging to do, but it comes across beautifully. Some of our equipment is surprisingly commonplace. I'm exceptionally proud of the cinematography on this movie, and credit goes to our director of photography, Frank Passingham, and his crew. But the gear to capture our footage was actually pretty simple. To shoot the movie, we used prosumer digital cameras, the kind you pick up in basically any camera shop, mostly Canon 5Ds. Okay, so here we are in the Farlands on the snowy tundra. As our heroes trek across the tundra, we see these huge statues buried in the snow, the ruins of an ancient civilization hinting at a cultural history existing long before the events the movie began. For our statues buried in the snow, we looked at the famed statues of the seven great temples in the city of Nara, Japan. They were the inspiration. The fact that these incredible monuments are now in decay in our film conveys an idea that's central to the narrative, that of impermanence, the idea that everything is transient. Even the towering monuments of Titans are ultimately swallowed up by the Earth. This plays into the idea of wabi-sabi. Wabi-sabi roughly translates as imperfect beauty. Inherent in this idea is an understanding, acceptance, and appreciation of transience and imperfection. It encourages us to find beauty in those things that fall short of the ideal. That's not only a thematic foundation of our movie, it's an encapsulation of our entire production process and an articulation of the humanist philosophy that informs every aspect of our work. For the performance of the flock of birds here, we reference the Chapman Swifts. Here in Portland, where I grew up and where our studio is based, the Chapman Swifts are a well-known migratory population of birds that roost every season in the chimney of Chapman Elementary School. Right around sunset in the fall, thousands and thousands of Swifts form a swirling, undulating flock that wheel and spin around in the sky and then funnel into the school's chimney. It's like a weird ballet of birds. 
As many as 35,000 birds have been sighted in one evening. They're incredible, hypnotizing, and now they've been immortalized in film. Well done, Chapman Swifts. At Leica, we have a tradition of featuring strong female characters in our film, going back to the beginning with Coraline. With this film, we played around with the conventions of the genre that we were working in. In Japanese folkloric tradition, the hero in the quest usually has a guide who's male. And I just love that Monkey was a female figure, a mother figure, and in fact, a mother. Her design is based on a Japanese macaque, a snow monkey, with a little bit of baboon thrown in there for good measure. This is a character that is very physically active. She's a warrior. She's so cool. It was a real coup for us when Charlize Theron agreed to play the role of Monkey. It's not exactly casting to type. I'm not sure that when you think of an ill-tempered, flea-ridden, hirsute primate, the first image that comes to mind is Charlize Theron. But she was perfect for the role. She's such an extraordinary actor. She was drawn to the project because she wanted to do something for her kids, something she could be proud to share with them. Being a mom was why she wanted to make this movie, which follows as it's fundamentally a film about mothers and their children. The film spoke to her experience as both a mom and a daughter. She mentioned that she was raised by her own mom in a very honest way, as was I. And she appreciated that the film acknowledges that family relationships don't always come easy to us. Charlize gives an incredible performance, strong and wise and funny, ferocious and flawed and vulnerable and loving. She runs the whole gamut of emotion, and she created this character with a complex and beautiful soul. Monkey is one of my favorite creations ever at Leica, and that's in large measure due to the performance of Charlize Theron. And this is where we carry on the B story of the film, the love story between a boy and his monkey. But the Kubo-Monkey dynamic is the center of the movie. It's all about Kubo's emotional well-being. It's really the heart of the movie. The whole movie is about that. So this is where we meet the third of our film's triumvirate, the Mighty Beetle, for the first time. You know, we set him up as a monstrosity, but then we quickly show that he's a warm, lovable guy, albeit a bit scattered. His den lies in an underground tunnel in a cave, as befits a beetle. But we wanted the environment to feel welcoming, to be cozy, to reflect the emotions, to reflect the personality of its inhabitant. And so we asked ourselves, what's a feudal Japanese version of a man cave? Well, this is it. Our assistant art director, Phil Brotherton, went to town on this location. Beetle's furnishings are a confused mix of weapons and armor and keepsakes from his forgotten past and sundries and tools that he's scavenged from his travels. There is a somewhat ordered chaos to the interior design, such as it is, that betrays Beetle's internal conflict. He's a cross between a pack rat bug and a noble warrior. The materials that we use here are actually pretty interesting. The cave walls are made out of dried and painted corn husks. They had the perfect textural striations that felt evocative of a woodblock print. Beetle's design is a cross between a stag beetle and a Japanese rhinoceros beetle. In Japan, the rhinoceros beetle is called kabutamushi, which literally means helmet bug. The insect's features resemble the headgear worn by a medieval samurai. In Japan, the rhinoceros beetle is associated with strength and fighting prowess. And in mythologies and cultures around the world, the beetle is a symbol of transformation and metamorphosis. And since those are central themes of the movie, this is an instance where the film's thematic core fused with design for a perfect narrative synthesis. It's nice when that happens. The puppet itself was pretty huge, about 18 inches tall. He's like those bodybuilders with the overdeveloped torsos and the underdeveloped legs. 
those dudes who spend way too much time doing bench presses and not enough time doing squats. Beetle is like that, really, really top-heavy. So much, in fact, that he couldn't even support his own weight. Beetle had to be rigged externally with a metal armature or mechanism holding up the body from the outside. After the animator was finished with the shot, we'd shoot a clean plate without the puppet in there and then paint out the rig in a compositing program. Now, back in the old days of stop motion, you couldn't do that. You couldn't use visible rigs like we have now because we couldn't paint them out in the computer because we didn't have a computer. So you'd have to try to hide all the rigging in the shot, usually with thin fishing line colored with a black Sharpie so it wouldn't reflect the light. And then we would suspend that above the set in a wonky wooden contraption. It was awful. I gotta tell you, I do not miss the good old days. We first started speaking with Matthew McConaughey about being involved in this film over three years ago to play the role of Beetle. We needed a variation of the classic action hero, the lantern-jawed, muscle-bound, wisecracking swashbuckler. But with a twist, Beetle is a lovable rogue oozing charisma and bravado, tons of swagger and machismo, but also insecure and vulnerable and plagued by pain and sadness and loss. And with a voice that had a lovely grit and earthiness to it that would convey all those seemingly incompatible qualities with emotional authenticity. And that led us to Matthew. We sent Matthew the script and he read it in chapters as a bedtime story for his kids. Like so many of us, he was drawn to the film's exploration of family. Matthew had never done an animated film before and he wanted to do something that he could share with his three kids. And I'm honored that he chose Kubo as that film. And I'm so very, very proud of his performance. It's so good. The process of getting a performance in acting and in animation are very, very different. Directing actors required me to use a different part of my brain. In animation, the animator typically works from the inside out. You figure out the emotion that the character is feeling, you figure out the emotion that you're trying to convey, and then you come up with physical actions, gestures, and emotions to express that emotion. In acting, the actor often works from the outside in. Emotions aren't really choosable. You can't choose how you feel, but you can choose what you do. Acting from the outside in involves creating the environment where an actor can choose actions that evoke an emotional response that's authentic. It looks and feels real because it is real. Working with just the voice as we do in animation, sometimes that means doing something physical to capture a specific sound or quality in the voice. We were working with Matthew in the recording studio and he was trying to capture a certain ragged quality in his voice to better express the emotion of the scene. He wasn't happy with the sound that he was getting out of his voice. And all of a sudden, he just disappears. I'm looking around, I don't see him anywhere. Where's Matthew, where'd he go? You know, he's nowhere to be found. I get up, I walk over and I look in the vocal booth and there he is on the ground, cranking out an inhuman amount of push-ups. It was unbelievable. I've never seen anyone do such a prodigious amount of push-ups. And then he promptly jumped up, delivered the line and nailed it. It was amazing. The act of physical strain gave his voice just the right quality that the line needed. And that's what great actors do. They know how to use their bodies and circumstances to capture and convey emotional truth. And it's really something to behold. The action sequences get progressively darker in this film, but the first one is intended to be lighter, more fun, more like the high-spirited white-knuckle thrill rides you find in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which, of course, is a perfect film. Not one errant step, not one wasted frame in the entire movie. So Indiana Jones is a big influence here, both in terms of action and tone. The inspiration for the giant skeleton that we're about to see comes from two places. 
First, there's the famous woodblock print, Takayasha the Witch and the Skeleton Spectre by Utagawa Kuniyoshi. The print depicts real-life 10th-century princess Takayasha summoning a giant skeleton monster from the shadows. And it's just an extraordinary image, haunting and beautiful and super weird. The second source of inspiration for our giant skeleton is fairly obvious. It comes from Ray Harryhausen's seminal work, Jason and the Argonauts. It's probably the best-known, most iconic piece of animation that Harryhausen ever did. The key moment comes near the end of the film where Jason squares off against an army of stop-motion skeleton warriors all brought to life a frame at a time by the master himself. It's an incredible moment of cinema, one that's lived with me since I was a kid. It's one of the moments that ultimately inspired me to become an animator in the first place. This is both a loving homage as well as our attempt at one-upping the master with a skeleton puppet so enormous it actually dwarfs the animator bringing it to life. From head to toe, the full-scale skeleton monster stands at 16 feet tall with a 23-foot wingspan and weighs north of 400 pounds. It's a puppet, it's a prop, it's a set. It's ridiculous, really. It's like a living set. It was rigged to a hexapod, which is a six-axis motion control unit made of metal that took a month for us to build in-house. The rig is similar to what's used as the motion base in a virtual reality ride at a theme park or on a flight simulator and it enabled the animator to move that massive torso at virtually any angle without fear of the thing collapsing and killing him. The last thing we want is a pureed animator. The monster's arms were counterweighted from the ceiling with a complex cabling system. Effectively, the skeleton was like an enormous marionette. The cables were connected to the skeleton's arms at the elbows and at the wrists, and then attached to the top of the building, then dropped down back to the stage where they were held in place with big plastic buckets filled with sandbags. The shoulders were held in place by clusters of magnets, and we used automobile brake pads to lock the elbow joints in place. This beast took so much abuse over the course of the shoot that we went through three sets of brake pads. Now part of the challenge in creating a puppet this large is to make it as light as possible, but still durable enough to withstand the rigors of a long shoot. So the bones are machined pieces of high-density foam typically used for architectural projects. So we built this monstrosity, and now who in the world was going to bring it to waking life? It was such a difficult, idiosyncratic puppet that we needed an animator to specialize in just this one thing for the whole show to focus a year and a half of his life on moving this monster around. That man was Charles Greenfield. He animated virtually all of the giant skeleton shots, and he did just an amazing job, just extraordinary. But perhaps at the small cost of a wee bit of his sanity, Charles would speak to the skeleton. He called him Bud. He greeted him good morning at the start of every day, and he wished him good night when he left for the evening. Charles would spend most of his days on an elevated 1,000-square-foot platform about six feet in the air to animate the monster. But the thing was so big that Charles needed an additional ladder just to reach the skeleton's head. In fact, when Charles was up there, you could see that his head fit perfectly into the skeleton's eye socket. So animating this thing was inherently perilous, but safety is no accident. We made sure we surrounded the elevated platform with crash pads, just in case Charles took an errant tumble off. Our floors at the studio are concrete, not a surface you want to land on, plummeting from 10 feet in the air. The last thing we want is an animator with a shattered arm and a ruptured spleen. Fortunately, Charles survived, more or less intact. Now, the Hall of Bones that houses the giant skeleton was a big set. 
I mean, it would have to be to fit that monstrosity inside of it. But we didn't have the real estate on our shooting floor to build the set in its entirety, so we only built a portion of it. Basically, any areas where the puppets make critical contact, so the entire floor, the lower section of the wall, and one wall in its entirety. The rest of the walls were built in CG and composited together from the plates of the stage. Even still, it was a pretty big set. 360 square feet covered with nearly 400 clear resin tiles painted to look like jade. Our guys used 200 gallons of resin to fabricate the floor and it took about 75 minutes to make each tile. Oh God, it makes my stomach hurt. So much work. But it looks stunning, beautiful. Except for that thing trying to bite our heroes' heads off. We really see the family dynamic at play here. We start to see the relationships develop, the interaction patterns, the personality types, and we get glimpses into Monkey and Beetle's parental philosophies. Monkey is the protective but stern mother. Beetle is the fun-loving but irresponsible father. And neither one of them works particularly well on their own. But together, they kind of work. He warms her up. She makes him more sensible. And the thread of mistrust and antagonism between these two reaches its peak here, but then gives way to their mutual affection for the boy and ultimately for each other. Sometimes, because we shoot for so long, the lighting gels start to bleach out. A shot can take weeks to finish, which means that those gels are baking under hot set lights for 12 hours a day. By the end of the shot, sometimes the quality of the light or the color will shift. Also, sometimes the lights will blow out. These things do have a limited life, and a stop-motion shoot will tax them. When a light dies, usually it's no big deal, a camera person will just swap it out for a new one. But sometimes the new light will be more powerful than the one it's replacing, and there will be a noticeable pop in the intensity of the light between the two frames. Again, usually it's not that big a deal. With a rheostat, you can dial in the intensity of the light up or down, or put a gel or a filter or a scrim in front of the light to balance it out. And if worse comes to worst, there's always our trusty VFX team to mop up our slapdash messes. Then play louder. This conversation is over. So what we're gonna have here in just a moment is the biggest display of Kubo's magic so far in the film. He's growing stronger, but he's still thinking like he did at the beginning of the movie. He's thinking like an origamist and a bit like a kid. In keeping with Kubo's talent for creating origami, the magic sailboat that he creates was designed to look as if Kubo folded it from one enormous piece of paper fashioned out of pressed leaves and twigs and driftwood. The design itself was modeled after traditional cargo boats of the era known as junks. The boat was just huge. It's one of the biggest props that we've ever made. 12 feet long, 14 feet high, and four and a half feet wide. The hull and the deck were made out of plywood over a metal frame and layered with a thin, bendable wooden skin that approximated the look of origami-like folds. And then we had to cover the whole thing with leaves. Tons and tons of leaves. Someone actually counted. A quarter of a million laser-cut paper leaves were attached by hand to the surface of the boat. Oy. And while it took Kubo mere seconds to make this thing, it took three carpenters, four landscape artists, four model makers, two scenic artists, a metal fabricator, and two machinists about four months to actually complete this boat. So by the end, we see that our characters are bonding and are boldly moving forward, leaving past conflicts behind. So this whole sequence shows the growing intimacy of our heroes. They're bonding, they're coming together. These opening moments are meant to be evocative of a dad playing catch with his son in the backyard. 
this whole first part of the second act is kind of a distillation of family experiences into about 30 or 40 minutes. Close one eye. Our studio is just outside of Portland, Oregon in the Pacific Northwest. It's a beautiful part of the world with a fairly mild climate, but it rains a lot. And the combination of temperature fluctuations and a lot of moisture in the air can wreak havoc on a stop motion production. It produces set shift, the bane of stop motion artists everywhere. On Coraline, we made the terrible mistake of making all the set bases out of wood. But wood absorbs moisture and is sensitive to temperature variations. Sometimes during the day, the wood would slowly expand or contract. The fluctuations might be incredibly small, even less than a centimeter. But in the puppet world and projected on the big screen, that small movement would feel like a massive tectonic shift. You'd leave your set at night, you'd come in in the morning, you turn on the lights, check the set, and it would look like an earthquake had hit. We ended up trying to shore up the sets with even more wood. That didn't work. We'd put jacks under the set surfaces to push them up or hang weights on them to pull them down. And ultimately, we learned our lesson. And from Paranorman on, we've been using steel supports and bases to hold up our sets. It's helped considerably, but there's still the odd bit of shift every now and then. A lot of it we just live with. It's part of the stop-motion charm. But for those set shifts that are particularly egregious, we'll shoot a clean plate, a still or moving version of the shot without any puppets or animation, and then we'll use those to stabilize those areas of the image that are drifting around. Thank God for VFX. One of our most seasoned animators, Jeff Riley, animated pretty much this entire section of the movie. And this was beautifully shot and lit by John Ashley, where you get these incredible golden and amber and orange hues to evoke the warmth of the family coming together. It's a really beautifully lit sequence, and it highlights the emotion of the scene. Never had a meal. You know, we have this sweet moment here of our makeshift family eating sashimi. Obviously, we create the images on our shooting stage and in the VFX department, but all the sounds have to be created as well. Otherwise, we've got a silent movie. And this here is one of those newfangled talkies all the kids are crowing about. But in a stop-motion film, sound and image are independent of each other. The sounds of Kubo and Beetle, these two troglodytes with no social graces ravenously devouring their food, had to be laid down in the recording studio. We brought in trays and trays of various types of sushi, and our Kubo, our Parkinson, would then chew noisily, open-mouthed, making all manner of gut-churning noises like we had asked him to. It was so gross. Ugh. And then we put the takes together in edit, and our poor editor, Christopher Murray, had to comb through take after take of the most disgusting sounds coming out of a human body. I thought he was going to be ill. And then, of course, we needed that moment where Kubo has his mouth jam-packed with food and he starts laughing at Beatles' antics. So to capture a real moment, our screenwriter and head of story Chris Butler and I were joking around in the recording studio, trying to get Art to laugh while he was eating. And it had the desired effect. Art would erupt in laughter, but he would also end up spitting out a heaping, slobbering mouthful of half-chewed sushi, spraying it all over the vocal booth. It looked like a crime scene in there. My apologies to the custodian. But these are the sort of things that you do to get a genuine reaction, a physical response to capture emotional authenticity. And thankfully, art was a great sport, and it works great in the movie. We're going to have to head for sure. So the movement of the sail there, we came up with a basic choreography for the sail blowing in the wind. And a lot of that stuff was animated by 
connecting the sail to rigs, to metal poles that then we could automate using motion control. Some of that stuff was animated by hand. It just depended on what we needed the motion to be. can hold their breath underwater for a very long time. What? Since when? It's a well For Kubo, our hero, we printed over 23,000 different faces, which could be combined with the various top and bottom parts of the face in over 48 million possible facial expressions. That's staggering. 48 million facial expressions. I have, what, maybe four tops? Kubo's face is way more expressive than my dopey mug. Plus, it's worth noting that Kubo has more unique smiling faces than all of our previous protagonists combined. I think that gets to the spirit of who this kid is. He's a sweet, optimistic, loving boy. You're gonna miss me, monkey. We shot the boat on a green screen unit and all the environment that you see there, the water and the sky, those were all computer generated. And I'll get in a little bit about how that was done here in just a moment, but it's incredible collaboration of our practical and digital visual effects teams. So lest we think it'll all be smooth sailing for our heroes, this sequence is a reminder that danger is never that far off. This is a moment of creepy stillness before the sisters attack. All three interactions with the sisters begin with this same basic pattern, eerie calm followed by horrific violence, although they all end differently in a way. I mean, they all kind of end in death, so there's that. But this pattern serves as something of a bridge passage like you find in music, preparing us for the return of a recurring thought or theme or idea. Back to the raging sea, this here is one of the first shots that we completed in animation for the film, and one of the last shots that we had finaled coming out of visual effects. We shot the animation with Kubo and Monkey and the boat on the stage in front of a green screen, and the VFX team's job was to build and animate the environment and then integrate all those discrete elements into one. It was a full year and a half between when the shot was finished on the stage and when it was approved in VFX. It was the longest production period of any visual effects shot in the film. And to celebrate its completion, the visual effects team built a pinata of Kubo's boat and broke it apart in front of the studio. There was a certain savage glee in the way our artists were hitting the pinata. Fittingly, the pinata was filled not with candy, but with those tiny airline booze bottles. So we go underwater, and this created its own unique challenges. We needed to understand how things really move underwater before we could stylize it. Our animation supervisor, Brad Schiff, went down to the local indoor pool and shot a bunch of reference to see what happens to the body, to hair, and to fabric when we swim underwater. He jumped into the pool wearing a kimono and spent the better part of an hour swimming around like he was in a Busby Berkeley routine. I'm pretty sure the other guests at the pool thought he was a lunatic. The biggest challenge of all here is the underwater Garden of Eyes, the second in the film's trifecta of mythical monsters. The garden contained an expanse of these enormous creatures that hypnotized their prey and dragged them down to a watery grave. It was impractical for us to build the whole horde of these things, so instead we built just one, and animated it and shot it from all angles over the course of about a year and a half, then composited it all together. The eye monster was gigantic, a puppet that stood about 11 feet tall and made out of a squishy, foam-like material. It looked like something out of an HR Puff and Stuff fever dream. 11 years ago, I lost my sister. So we attached the boat to a complex motion control rig programmed to move a frame at a time to simulate the erratic path of a vessel carving through violent waves. 
We used a hexapod similar to the one that we built for the giant skeleton. Same basic device that you find on a flight simulator or in a virtual reality ride. One of the biggest challenges both here and with the beginning sequence of the movie was how we would create and animate water. Initially, our rigging department, led by Ollie Jones, carried out a series of in-camera tests of practical water. This involved everything from panes of rippled shower glass to torn bits of paper to sheets of cloth, shower curtains, even garbage bags fixed to a grid of metal rods. After an exhaustive succession of explorations, we came up with a basic look and behavior for the water, one with stylized scoop patterning, angular geometric shapes, and textures inspired by Kiyoshi Saito's wood grain. So we shot tests and captured a lot of this stuff on the stages, but it wasn't practical to shoot it all in camera. There was just no way we could do that and make it look believable. So we brought in our visual effects team to recreate the feel of the practical tests combined with the greater flexibility and precision and nuance of CG simulations. But the trick was that it had to be on style. Kubo's world is a stylized one with a nodding acquaintance to the natural world, but also removed from it. The appearance of the water needed to be consistent with the overall production design, a look we called skewed naturalism. In effect, the water needed to have the style of a moving woodblock print, but behave like water that we observe in nature. This big, gnarly mouth of the creature that we see owes a debt to the Sarlacc from Star Wars. We described it as an organic underwater wood chipper. I think our fabricators just about nailed it. The final product altogether, with the animation and Dean Holmes' glorious lighting and the visual effects works integrated, it's beautiful and it's terrifying, the stuff of nightmares. Rooney Mara's performance here as the sisters is just exceptional. She's terrifying, but you can hear the pain in her voice. You know, where does the pain come from? That's oftentimes what we ask ourselves to try to figure out what these characters are about, what is driving their pain, what's driving their emotion. And in this case, it's about loss, which is so much of what the film is. Christopher Murray, our editor, reckons this sequence is the best thing that he's ever cut, and I agree. The energy, the pacing, the rhythms, and the dynamism are just excellent and so unusual for an animated film. In live action films, you shoot tons of coverage and the same actions from multiple angles. And then you get in the edit bay and you winnow all that footage down to a few scant seconds of adrenalized high energy cinema. Well, we can't do that in animation. We can't shoot any coverage. We basically use everything that we shoot and we can't afford any wasted effort. So every moment is heavily choreographed and heavily planned and yet it needs to look spontaneous, as if what we're seeing is happening right in front of our eyes in the moment. And so that requires a lot of planning, but it has a spontaneity to it that really makes it pop off the screen. In terms of filmic influences, there were two figures that towered over all others. The two main pillars on this movie are Akira Kurosawa and Hayao Miyazaki. There isn't a filmmaker in the last half century that hasn't been directly or indirectly influenced by Kurosawa, one of the great masters in cinema. Japan is the birthplace of the modern cinematic epic, and that's due entirely to the sprawling and innovative masterpieces of Akira Kurosawa. Every frame in a Kurosawa film is like a painting. His composition, cutting, movement, and lighting were an aesthetic muse on Kubo. But it's not just how he made movies, it's what he made movies about. Existentialism, humanism, the heroic ideal, how an individual must stand alone, opposing a corrupt system or tradition or even family itself, in order to do the right thing. He explores what a family means to who we are and to what we become. Those are some of the very same themes at the core of Kubo and the Two Strings. 
Hayao Miyazaki was an inspiration in a different way. Miyazaki finds something that he has a fascination with, and he internalizes it, synthesizes it, and weaves it into his art. His work is an interpretation, like an impressionist painting of the place, capturing the feeling and the experience of it. I hope this film does that. If I'm Beetle. So this is the third and the last in our second act trifecta of intimate family meals. In the first, Kubo and Monkey are just getting to know each other inside the whale, and Kubo opens up a bit, revealing something of himself. In the second, all three of them are on the boat, and Kubo continues to lay himself bare to reveal himself. And on this last one, it's Monkey's turn. This time, she reveals a secret that she's deeply ashamed of, that's haunted her for years, that she was a monster, like the rest of her family, that she did some horrible things, she did some awful things in her past, and she's full of regret. It's one of those things where she's trying to protect Kubo from the truth, but she's also protecting herself and her son's image of her. But here, she lets the mask slip, and she opens up, and this brings all of them closer together. This moment is meant to be evocative of that time in our lives when we finally see our parents for the flawed creatures that they are. When we're kids, our parents seem like they've got it all figured out, that they are fonts of wisdom, that they're unshakable pillars of strength. And as a father myself, I can assure everyone that that is not the case. I'll let you in on a little secret. As a parent, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm making it all up as I go along. And so for Kubo, this moment is profound and magical. He's learning something about his mom and his dad that he's never known. We get a glimpse of their relationship. We get a glimpse of the life that he might have had. Now, it's notable here that Kubo and Monkey are telling the story together, enriching the bond between mother and son. We've never seen that before. Most of this sequence was animated beautifully by Jan Maas. It's just such a lovely, soulful performance by both Kubo and Monkey. The nature origami that we see floating around in the inside of the cave here was a bit of a trick. We shot a number of these things at different scales. The constellation are a combination of digital and practical elements. When we try to dramatize the story of Kubo's mother and father meeting for the first time, we want to see that on screen. We didn't want it to just be a story that mom is telling. In much like the way Kubo tells his story in town at the beginning of the movie, we wanted mom's story to have that same degree of dynamism, although this one is more emotional. But we didn't have origami. We didn't have paper in the sequence. And so we needed to somehow justify being able to see these things visually happen in the moment. And so we basically just use whatever things would naturally be there in this cave. In this case, a maple leaf is a stand-in for Kubo's father, which has that beautiful red color, just like little Hanzo. For mother there, that's an orchid that comes off of the ground. And then for baby Kubo, it's a little pea pod. Of course, once mother reveals this part of her story, it's a little more than Kubo can bear, and he stops. And when, of course, when he stops playing, all his magic stops and everything becomes lifeless and inert. Something I think most people would find somewhat surprising, puppets sweat. That's right, puppets actually sweat, just like you and me. Well, maybe not like me, I'm disgusting. After workout, I look like I just emerged from a putrid pool of perspiration. So totally gross, Ugh. But puppets do sweat. Sitting under those intense, hot set lights all day, over time, the oils from the puppet's silicon skin starts to seep out, making them all shiny, like they're on the set of a spaghetti western. It's like High Plains Drifter in here. So just like in a live-action film, we have a makeup artist in the form of a puppet fabricator who comes out on set and pats down the skin, sops up the oil, 
and puts a touch of talc on the puppet for a nice matte finish. And thus, we make sure the puppet is ready for their close-up. For this shot here, where Monkey puts Kubo to bed, her arms actually couldn't do that. They couldn't reach over his body and put the blanket over him. And so for the very first part of that shot there, if you go through frame by frame, you can probably get a sense that there's a detached arm that's holding the blanket in place that then when the camera tilts up, we then swap out with a real one. We do cheats in these movies all the time to get the action and the emotion across and try to hide as much of that stuff in camera as possible. Magic. This moment here is really solidifying the bond between Monkey and Beetle. Monkey's revealing a lot of herself to Beetle. She's basically telling him that she's dying. It's one of the greatest fears of every parent to wonder what happens to my kid once I'm gone. And this is probably the first real indication that this film will not have a standard Hollywood happy ending, that at least one of our heroes is not going to make it to the end of the story, as we see more than one. But it's bittersweet, and we hope that their time together is meaningful. It will never end. It will be told by him. And so it's hardly a coincidence that my first film as a director combines all these things that I've loved deeply since I was a kid. Epic fantasy, animation, samurai stories, and the beautiful transcendent art of Japan. The great filmmaker Zhang Jimu said that every boy wants either a train set or to make a martial arts movie. And I never had a train set, so there you go. So Kubo goes to sleep, and we push in on his eye, and we're now in this dream world. For Kubo's dream, we created an entire world made of origami, including the water. This was all built and shot practically with a digital assist on the water, and then we combined it all in compositing. Grandfather is effectively trying to lure Kubo into a trap by creating this beautiful, perfect world out of paper, just like Kubo would. So we built a small-scale miniature set with trees and a self-assembling fortress and an interior of the fortress with paper samurai guards. All the paper that you actually see here is off-white. There's no color to this paper at all. All the color that you see comes from the lights and the gels used by our camera team. The sea here was created in visual effects based on a sample of origami created by our set designer, Emily Green. And the waterfall in the background there is all practical. It was paper that was on a winder that we manipulated a frame at a time to make it look like water coursing over the edge of a waterfall. The camera swirling around the fortress and the fortress rising up from the water, that was the very last shot that we completed on this show. And it was a nightmare. Many different passes. There was a miniature fortress, a full-scale partial set with the puppets on it, a different, even smaller miniature for the background, visual effects water, churning paper. Ugh. <laughs> we barely made it in time for the finish of the movie, but it's pretty sweet. It came together really nicely. We made about a quarter of those origami samurai statues that you see as the camera flies into the fortress. And then we shot multiple passes and used mirrors to make it look like there were a bunch of them and then put it all together in comp. I'm up. This moment is meant to be suggestive of those early Saturday mornings when the kid is amped up and energized and trying to drag mom and dad out of bed who only want just a few more precious minutes of sleep. Oh. We have these whole series of events which are supposed to be tiny little distillations of the experience of living and growing with a family. And this is what that moment is supposed to suggest. So we see this growing fondness between Monkey and Beetle who don't stop their sparring, but... Only now there's no heat behind it. It's warm. It's playful. And this is when the world really opens up, where we feel the characters' bond solidifying more than ever. 
These series of shots here were a combination of full-size sets and miniatures. It's the height of our hero's connectivity and everything comes together. The lighting, the cinematography, the color palette, the music, all to showcase the family's togetherness. Frank Passingham, our director of photography, shot this and it's some of his finest work. The music is joyous, the bamboo forest is just beautiful. We use bridal veil between the foreground of the set and the background to give a sense of depth and atmosphere. There's not a whole lot of space actually between those two things, but by using these tricks that come from the stage really, from the theater, we're able to give a sense of depth and perspective. Snowflake. These shots here were really challenging because, you know, walking a puppet is really, really hard. And our animator here, Ludo Berardo, had to animate three of them. Kubo sitting on monkey's back, Beetle there with his captain of the football team, Swagger. They all had to have their own unique gait. This portion of the film is meant to be reminiscent of a fun family road trip. It's designed to distill those instances of family connectivity down to their essence. This is like the game of I Spy that you play when you're on the car on a road trip. As artists, we look for the hidden connections between the things we observe, the things we imagine, and the things that we experience. We draw from all aspects of our lives to create. This allowed me to channel the physicality of my elder son when I was developing the way Norman moved in Paranorman, or to take gestures and little bits of personality from my daughter to give life to Coraline. It's why Winnie and the Box Trolls runs exactly like my wife. And it's why Kubo and the Two Strings is essentially a heightened, fantastical version of my own childhood of my relationship with my family, of my experiences growing up, and my experiences as a father. By making things deeply personal, we hope they become more universal. This is Kubo's birthplace, the place he shared with his parents before his family was ripped apart. It's quite literally a broken home. It's listing, the foundation is shifted, and the whole place is being reclaimed by nature. The look of the exterior of the building was inspired by the ravaged fortress in Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon. We only see the fortress from this angle in one shot, so it made absolutely no sense to build the whole thing at full scale. Although something not making sense hasn't necessarily stopped us before, this time reason prevailed, and instead we built a miniature, an exterior of the fortress that was 1 24th scale, four times smaller than our typical scale. The family portrait, it's like a faded childhood photograph, and it's the first time that Kubo has ever seen an image of his family together, and he's moved by it. There's a bit of foreshadowing there. A family is about to be separated for good. Kubo moves forward. Mom and dad get left behind, which you see when he slides these screens open. The vibe that we're going for in this section is it's as if our characters are walking through a dream, walking through a memory. We see images and remembrances of their time together. And we have this incredible harp that's playing in the background, this beautiful, delicate music. And the harpist, the guy who made this music, was a giant. He looked like a truck driver. And yet he had these enormous hands which moved with such grace and fluidity, and they made such exquisite, elegant, enchanting music. He's a colossus with the heart of a poet. So don't judge a book by its cover, indeed. There's something I don't understand. Why would the helmet be here? Kubo. Back to the set, you'll notice that the set is angled at two different directions, and there's a massive fissure that runs along the entirety of it. We're trying to give this location a sense of history, indicating that there was once a grand but devastating battle that took place here. This is where Hanzo and his men had their last stand against the armies of the Moon King, giving Kubo and his mom a chance to get away. This battle took place right before our film begins, and you can see it did not go so well for the Beetle clan. Every member of Hanzo's army was killed, and the courtyard is scattered with their armor and weapons. 
which we use as compositional elements and framing devices in a good number of these shots. Of all of us, you've shown And because we don't want to house style, every film is different. Each film is its own unique thing, and the design needs to reflect that. The design should evolve naturally out of the needs of the narrative. So we ask ourselves, what is the look of this particular show? What is its unique signature? For Kubo, our visual inspiration was kindled by many forms of classic Japanese art. Origami, ink wash paintings, no theater, late Edo period doll making. But the biggest visual cue comes from ukiyo-e, which literally means pictures of the floating world. You took her. Kevin Perry, our origami expert, animated this, and it's really, really cool. We have this chestburster moment here, which is a nod to Ridley Scott's Alien, uh, a movie that I deeply loved as a kid. But good God, that movie gave me nightmares for years. I reckon it's moments like this that have given Laika something of a reputation. Over the years, we've been accused of making films that are dark and scary. Some say we're fixated on grotesqueries that were fetishistically obsessed with the macabre. Yeah, all right, that's fair. I mean, within a certain context, that's sort of accurate. It's generally true that most animated films are sugar-coated, cotton-candied confections that go down easy. While our first film, Coraline, was what one observer called a Roman Polanski art film for kids. Not exactly the sort of thing that you want to put on a poster for a whole host of reasons. And I suppose that we have soaked more than a few bunk bed mattresses in our time. But that's never the goal. What we're trying to do is we're trying to bring people together by telling rich, dynamic, and evocative stories. I simply don't believe in watered-down, sanitized storytelling. In our modern era, I can appreciate that's a fairly unusual point of view, but it's not historically. Look at the Greek myths or classic fairy tales, those incredible animated Disney films from the 30s and 40s and 50s, or the great Amblin movies of the 80s. Those storytellers understood the delicate balance of darkness and light, of intensity and warmth, of joy and heartache and humor and heart. Those ingredients make for powerful storytelling experiences. And that was our goal right from the beginning at Laika, to make movies that matter, to craft meaningful films that are bold, distinctive, and enduring, that honor history and tradition while looking toward the future. We aspire to make movies that are thought-provoking and emotionally resonant. I truly believe that spending some time in the shadows makes the light even brighter. It makes a story more poignant, stronger, and that we're all the better for it. But then again, I'm a guy who saw The Exorcist when I was five, so take all that with a grain of salt. Eh, I don't know. I mean, come on. Look how well I turned out. You have nothing to fear, Mom and Dad. Your kids will be fine. So in this big battle that we have here, it's sort of the darker image of the battle that we had on the boat with the sister. The one on the boat early on in the film was supposed to have a sense of balletic grace. It's sort of like a ballet of death. The battle here between monkey and sister is more like a street fight. It's a barroom brawl. It's just brutal. The death scene here was animated by Anthony Strauss, who gives just such a beautiful performance. And I love Matthew's performance here. You know, we had this scene written a couple of different ways, and none of them felt quite right. And so partway through the recording session, Matthew and I sat down, and we talked through it, and we landed on this line that he has, you were my quest. It's Beatles' weird way of saying, I love you. So it's now all come crashing down for our boy. He's lost his entire family, just as he was getting to know them. The mask that he's been wearing for the whole film shatters. He's been burying and hiding his pain, and it all comes rushing out with the loss of his mom and dad. 
And this scene is about loss. How do you react to that? What do you do? And he reacts with first sadness and then rage. This shot here is the only shot in the whole movie where we use an overscale face. The face that we use is a bit bigger than my fist, which, you know, most of these faces are about the size of a curled thumb. So that was quite a bit bigger. And we needed it for the tear, the tear that streams down Kubo's face there. It was shot using glycerin, which the animator moved a frame at a time to make it look like a tear was coursing down the boy's face. And so this is where Kubo sees his prize. This is where Kubo sees the last piece of the puzzle, where he needs to go to get the final piece of the armor back in his hometown. And this is the second string of the two strings, dad's bowstring to go along with mom's hair. The third string, of course, as we'll see, is Kubo's own hair, which brings the family together. This section was animated by Phil Dale and shot by John Ashley. Glorious stuff. There's the moon, the watchful eye. And we're back home. We can see the impact that the sisters had on Kubo's village. It's just devastated. It's destroyed. We see the bell there, which is actually the helmet Kubo's finally coming to get so he can take on his grandfather. And where Kubo glides in on his glider, this was a ridiculous rig that we put together for this shot. It was a massive motion control rig where Kubo had to fly from about 15 to 20 feet in the air to the deck of the set, about 15 feet away. And we had to swap rigs partway through the shot and making it appear seamless, but our rigging department did an extraordinary job. This section was shot by Mark Stewart with set dressing by Jesse Gregg. So Kubo finds the final piece of the armor and he's about to put it on and call out his grandfather when he hears the voice of his only friend in town. And it causes him to have just a moment's hesitation as he sends these people away before what's about to happen. And then, meaningfully, he turns his back on them. He turns his back on humanity. He's ready to kill. And a bit later, when he utters those words that he's going to kill his grandfather, I hope that it's shocking to hear. It was shocking for us to write, and it was shocking for me to hear our, our Kubo utter those words, to hear this beautiful boy say these terrible words. It shows what pain and loss can do to even the purest and most noble of souls. Kubo's armor was treated with invisible ultraviolet paint and then shot with multiple exposures. With one exposure, we used black light in order to isolate specific areas that we could make glow in visual effects. And we used the same paint treatment on the Moon Beast. Hello, grandson. This animation here is just extraordinary. It's a duel between two master animators, Malcolm Lamont animating the grandfather and Ian Whitlock animating Kubo. It's this glorious dance, and the acting here is just exquisite. This whole chunk of the film was storyboarded beautifully by Emanuela Kutzi. The last couple of films we've made, I animated several of Emanuela's sequences in their entirety, and that's no accident. I'm completely enamored with her work. Emanuela was a 2D animator back in the day, before she became a story artist. And her boards have that animator's eye for well-observed detail and performance. They're incredibly cinematic and emotional. One of my favorite things that I've ever done was to bring Emanuela's storyboards to life at the end of Paranorman with that final scene in Aggie's Meadow. It was so beautiful. I got teary just looking at her drawings. I had initially hoped to animate this sequence as well, and I did do a handful of these shots here, but it got to be too much because directing is a full-time gig. Directing is too consuming. One of the things that you need to animate is time, and that's something that was in short supply. 
When you're the director, you're the nexus of everything. Every single creative, artistic, and technical decision ultimately piles up on the director's shoulders. Every scrap of fabric, every cut of every hair of Kubo's wig, every prop on every set, every cloud in every sky, every single piece of music runs through the director's filter. We create this entire world from scratch, and it needs to filter through one brain. And it can be exhausting, but it's also exhilarating. You're surrounded by so many brilliant and passionate artists. You try to inspire them, but ultimately they're the ones that are inspiring you. It's just a beautiful collaboration. Directing Kubo has been the most creatively satisfying experience of my entire life, and I'm grateful for it. So Grandfather's facial design is a fusion of Bella Lugosi and Peter Cushing, two great movie villains. And his collar there is a cheeky nod to Klaatu from the great movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Kubo's robe is made out of fine-grade silk over Tyvek, giving it the appearance of an old, rich fabric made of crumpled silk. To get the proper degree of flexibility, our guys told me that the Tyvek needed to be crumpled and then uncrumpled exactly 15 times before it was applied to the puppet. Exactly 15 times? Yeah? I mean, if they say so. I suspect it's really OCD. I mean, it's something that I know that I'm plagued with, as I assume most animators are. We all have our weird little rituals. I've been using the exact same X-Acto knife since Coraline. It's pretty raggedy, scratched and gouged and worn and covered in blobs of epoxy. But I dare not use a new one. The universe might collapse in on itself. All right, it is on now. The final confrontation, the big battle. Every lion-hearted knight has to face off against his terrible dragon. And for Kubo, that's the moon beast. For the monster's design, it's a fusion of traditional Japanese dragons, bioluminescent sea creatures, and an actual super creepy prehistoric fish. There's also just a little bit of grandfather's face in there to carry over the design, bridging the two. The monster's glow and star-like shimmer are meant to evoke constellations in the night sky. The Moon Beast is our first entirely 3D printed puppet. It's made up of nearly 900 individual parts with a gooseneck armature inside. The resin that we print in creates a hard surface, which has no give at all when the plates butt up against each other. We originally experimented with this really cool hybrid printing technique where we printed a portion of the shell with plastic and the edges with rubber, which was pliable, giving the animator far greater flexibility. The problem was the rubber would wear out. It started deteriorating almost immediately. So we had to roll with plan B, which was to create the entire thing in hard resin. Much more challenging for the animator, but the material could withstand the abuse of production. We painted the monster with ultraviolet inks, which are invisible to the naked eye, but when we shot a second exposure under black lights, those sections of the monster would glow, like an 80s music video. Our VFX department could then dial in the degree of bloom coming off the creature's body. Also, we printed the upper part of the moon beast in a translucent material that we then backed with mylar balloons, like you find at a kid's birthday party. The material had this perfect degree of reflectivity, and if you look closely, you'll see that shiny gold shimmer beneath the creature's head. That's a balloon. The Moon Beast was a pretty big puppet at over three feet long, but it was a miniature built at one-fifth the scale that we typically shoot in. If we built it full scale, it would have been nearly 18 feet long. We did create a full-scale hand for when the monster picks up the boy and where they have critical contact. Even that thing was big at three and a half feet long. For every other shot, we had to composite it all together, with Kubo running around with nothing to react to on the full-size set, and the moon be shot on a separate green screen unit. If you look at the uncomposited shots, Kubo looks like he's having an episode, running and dodging and thrashing at something that isn't there. 
And anytime there was any camera movement, that movement would then have to be replicated precisely on both units, on both Kubo's unit and the Moonbeast unit, but then scaled down on the one to account for the reduced size of the monster. There was a whole lot of math going on there. So this is it, the final string, the families all together, mother, father, son, all together, the three of them, unity. So he understands that he can't defeat his grandfather by being like him, by fighting him. He defeats him by following the example of his parents, by forgiving him, by showing compassion. And that causes everything to change. I know why you want my eye. Because without it, I can't look into All the sets are elevated about four feet off the ground. This is the perfect and most comfortable height for animators to work with, to animate their puppets. Any higher, and you'd have to stretch your arms up to reach the puppets, which over a 10 or a 12 hour day will destroy your arms and shoulders. And if the set is lower, the animator will have to hunch over, which puts a serious strain on your lower back. Sometimes because of the specific size of a set, it can't be helped. So we'll build a platform for the animator to stand on, or an animator will use a scissor lift or stand on an apple box. Sometimes animators will kneel on comfort pads or sit on stools or even lie down on a padded repurposed diving board to access their puppets. It can be grueling and it taxes you physically. Animators end up contorting their bodies in all manner of weird positions. So we want to make it as easy on them as possible. And still, there's no getting around it. Twisting your body around, standing on your feet all day on a concrete floor can be fatiguing, which is why we have yoga classes at the studio to encourage our artists to stretch and limber up and we have an on-site masseuse to work out those knotted up muscles. Grandfather has been transformed and reborn. The slate has been wiped clean. Kubo certainly had the power to destroy his grandfather, but he chose instead to forgive. Compassion over confrontation, benevolence over belligerence. He uses his powers of transformation to reform the monster back into a man, to give him an opportunity to make amends, a second chance. With this first series of shots, we show Kubo and Grandfather as distorted versions of one another, like a funhouse mirror image. You can see that in the lighting where we're using a warm and cool motif bifurcating them both. You can see it in their faces, where there's a physical reminder of the cost of the journey. An eye for an eye, indeed. So this scene is an awakening, a renewal. Even still, Kubo's not totally sure. He's tentative. But the villagers see this, and they reach out. Kubo has told them stories for years. Now it's their turn. They love this kid, and they're trying to help him out. We see the best of humanity as they offer their forgiveness and give Grandfather an opportunity to rewrite his story. This film is ultimately the story of one child attempting to reconcile family and tradition and understand how love and hurt can reside side by side in the human heart. It's about loss and healing, about compassion and forgiveness, about how mercy doesn't negate a bitter past. It doesn't erase pain. It doesn't compel us to forget. But it can create a new way for us to remember. It can heal us and make us whole again. It can give us hope for the future. Will it work? I don't know. I do know that it's important for us to try. Some people are beyond redemption, unfortunately, but it's still important that we try. If we're lucky enough to get a chance, it's up to us what we do with it. At the start of this film, both Grandfather and Kubo were open wounds that wouldn't heal. At the end, Kubo, at least, is whole again. 
So we're now at Arcota. Some of my favorite bits of writing and acting here. Mark Hames wrote this section, and it's just beautifully written, really moving. And it's soulfully acted by Art Parkinson and wonderfully animated by Anthony Strauss. Really delicate, subtle, beautiful animation here. With these final moments, we recall Kubo's first prayer in the cemetery. But this is the dawn of a new day. Kubo reflects on all of his experiences with his family. And while he doesn't get everything that he wanted, and it is tinged with melancholy and regret, we end it all with hope. And we know that this kid is going to be okay. This was a happy story. As a character, Kubo evolved considerably over the course of the film's development. In early versions of the script, he was a much younger character, around six or seven years old. As we started to refine the big ideas, to really hone in on the story that we were telling, and as we landed on the overriding maturation metaphor that was driving the narrative, it became clear that he was far too young. We needed to age him up. We needed to bring him to the precipice of manhood, straddling that Rubicon between childhood and adulthood. So Kubo's around 12 years old. It's probably not coincidental that Kubo and Art, the actor that portrays him, were the exact same age as my oldest son when we started making this movie. The full moon has been this watchful eye for the entire film, a symbol of grandfather's sway over Kubo's life. It was the film's opening image, and now we see that it's diminished. It's a crescent moon, and grandfather can't hurt Kubo anymore. We see where those golden heron come from. And we see dad here for the first time. And if he looks a little like Toshiro Mufune, that's not an accident. Yojimbo is one of my favorite films ever. This final moment is notable, with mom brushing Kubo's hair off his face. It's a very mom-like gesture, to be sure, but it also symbolizes how Kubo has grown and been made whole. He's no longer ashamed of his scars. They're a part of who he is. They're a symbol of healing, and he's not going to hide anymore. So we see our boy gets his happy ending, although it's admittedly bittersweet. His parents are no longer physically around, but he'll carry them with him, like we all do. Our experiences with our parents, their lessons, their wisdom, their love, these can be enduring sources of strength and comfort and guidance in our lives. We are the continuation of our parents' stories, our children, our own. And that idea carries us to the end of the film. When it came time to choose this song to accompany our main on end credit sequence, there was really only one choice for me, the perfect song. It needed to be beautiful and poetic. It needed to capture the spirit of the movie and its themes. It needed to be a timeless expression of love and empathy. And that's where the Beatles came in. I grew up in a Beatles household. My mother is a lifelong Beatles fan, and as a consequence, so am I. Another one of the many great gifts she bestowed upon me. She was a teenager when the Beatles first appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show, the perfect age for a girl to discover those four lads from Liverpool. The Beatles provided the soundtrack of my childhood. We would listen to their records on the hi-fi, their eight-track cartridges in my dad's blue cougar coupe. I learned their songs on my first acoustic guitar, and one song in particular was a deeply loved favorite of both me and my mother. That song is While My Guitar Gently Weeps, the perfect song for a movie about mothers and sons. I asked our composer, Dario Marinelli, to approach the arrangement as if it were part of the rest of the score, as if it were woven from the same thread, the same approach, the same instrumentation. We went all analog. We didn't plug anything into the wall. We used largely traditional Japanese instruments, the koto, taiko drums, shakuhachi, the shamisen, of course, along with more classical and romantic Western instruments, violins, violas, 
basses, cellos, piano, brass, French horns, all that. And then to bring it all home, we needed a beautiful, evocative, haunting vocal to bring the emotion to life. And that's where Regina Spector came in. I just love Regina. She's awesome. I've been a fan of hers for years. When I'm animating, sometimes it can be a struggle to get myself in the right emotional space to create and evoke the right emotion of the story. One of the things that I found greatly helps to elicit and sustain emotion over long periods of time is music. I would create playlists of different kinds of music depending on the feeling that I was hoping to express. And one artist that was in heavy rotation was Regina Spector. And her music worked for so many different moods. Sometimes I would listen to nothing but Regina's records for weeks on end. My animation owes a debt to her music. So I reached out to Regina, hoping against hope that she'd be interested in being part of our weird little movie. And blessedly, she was. And a couple of months later, we had the song in all its glory. Every movie that we've done at Leica, going back to the first one, going back to Coraline, during the end credits, we always peel back the curtain to show the audience how this thing was done. You know, you hope that over the course of the film that people get immersed in the story and the characters, that they forget that they're looking at these little tiny objects that have been brought to life by the hands and the will of the animators. But at the end of it, it's always fun to see just a tiny little glimpse of how this was done. And that's what we have here. You get a sense of the scale of this creature that we have in the film. And you see, <laughs> this is probably the first time ever that the puppet has been bigger than the animator. So it's always a nice little nod to the craft that we like to show at the end of the movie. During the end credit roll here that we have, the graphics that you see coming to life on either side on the margins of the roll are meant to be evocative of the process of creating a woodblock print. The icons of the story, key moments of the journey are commemorated as if Kubo's story is an old myth. And the way the graphics seem to rub onto the surface of this roll of paper is similar to the final part of the process in woodblock printmaking. The impressions are made by rubbing a flat, disc-like tool called a baron over the back of a sheet of paper, which picks up the ink from the wood. And that's what this stuff is supposed to be evocative of. Working with our composer, Dario Marinelli, in this film was a dream. It was such a wonderful collaboration. We worked together on our last movie, The Box Trolls, and I was so impressed with his approach, his work ethic, and above all, his extraordinary, exquisite, achingly beautiful music. I was overjoyed when Dario agreed to work with us again on Kubo. This movie was heavy on the music. There's probably more music in this film than anything that we've ever done, and it plays an even more critical role. Early on, I mentioned to Dario that Kubo was something of an Orpheus figure, a boy gifted with divine music, who could coax rocks and trees to dance with the beauty of his work. So, no pressure there, Dario. I just need you to make godlike music. No problem. No biggie. But he got it. He knew what we were going for. And we were so completely in sync on this film, which is what you pine for when you collaborate with artists. Before Dario starts working on a specific sequence, we'll discuss it. And what we typically talk about is the emotion of the scene, what the scene is about, what the themes are at play, what our characters are going through, what feelings we're trying to evoke in the audience. Sometimes we'll get into the nitty gritty of a specific phrase or instruments or any number of granular things, but it's usually pretty high level. It's a story discussion because that's what Dario is. He's a storyteller. He tells stories through music and God is he good. Divine music, indeed. The pace of making these films is glacial. It takes forever. 
The danger with that when you're in production for a long period of time is that you can suffer a degree of drift where the look and the style and even the story slowly by inches starts to get away from you. We worked on Kubo for over five years and the shoot itself was nearly two years. That's a lot of time and a whole host of opportunities for things to go wrong. One of the things that works in our favor is the fact that the core of our creative team has been intact from the start. We keep the band together. Most of us have known each other and worked together for 10 years or more. We've grown together as filmmakers and artists and people. We all know each other so well at this point that we have this incredible shorthand. We can basically communicate with troglodytic grunts. Another key thing that we've got going for us is that working in stop motion requires tremendous discipline. That quality is hardwired into the DNA of every stop motion artist. It's in our bones. It ensures that we stay on target. Another thing, it's never boring. There's always some minor miracle that's occurring on the stages or in the computer lab or in the wood shop. The energy in this place is incredible and it's infectious and the air crackles with creativity. And artists feed off of that and they feed off of each other and that helps to keep everyone motivated. And then of course, there's probably the single biggest thing, which is having a life outside of work. Life is fuel for art. And if you don't live, you can't really create. For me, the biggest inspiration of all is my family. In fact, the only reason Leica even exists is because of my kids, because I became a father. Having children changed everything for me. It changed my outlook on the world and it upended the trajectory of my career. When my guys were little, I saw the kind of garbage that they were exposed to and I was appalled. And I didn't want to be any part of that. I wanted to make art that was a corrective, that was a restorative tonic to the vapid sensory assault of so much entertainment geared towards families. If it weren't for my kids, I never would have started Leica and I never would have made this movie. That desire to make films of beauty and meaning and resonance that celebrate our shared humanity and offer a hopeful, uncynical view of the world, that's inspired by my family, and that continues to be my driving force to this day. And that, and many reasons too plentiful to count, is why I dedicated this movie to my family. They are everything to me, and I couldn't do what I do without them. And to my extended family at Leica, the names of whom you've seen trundling along during these credits, you have my deepest gratitude. These incredible people poured their hearts and their souls into this movie, and it shows. And I'm so incredibly proud of what you've done. And to you, dear viewer, thank you so much for spending this time with us. It has been a pleasure. We've covered a lot of ground, shared a few laughs, and I appreciate you joining us on this journey. Until next time, Excelsior!